Hello and welcome. You are listening to the Investor Lab, the auditory epicenter for passionate people seeking a life of freedom, choice, and abundance. And today I go 16 rounds with Terry Ryder as we talk about all of the different things, all of the different reasons, uh, and all of the different factors that are driving the national property boom. And there's a bit of a surprise at the end. It's I guarantee that these are maybe some things you know about, but lots of things that you don't. And the thing that you think is driving the property boom probably isn't. So there's a little bit of a cliffhanger for you. Make sure you get around to the end. It's a long episode. We go through a lot of points. Terry put together 16 different reasons that he believes uh, that you know, are the major factors that are driving the Australian property, National Australian property boom. We dig into all of them. I challenge him on some points. We agree on others. Um, Gabby was the referee in this in this episode. Uh, and look, it was a lot of fun. I know you're going to get a lot out of it. Some of the stuff you may know about, but some of the stuff you're probably going to get enjoyment out of. And nonetheless, you're probably going to have a fun time listening to it because it was a great episode to record and it's probably going to be a great episode to listen to. So without any further ado, let's get stuck right into it. Let's explore the 16 drivers of the national property boom. We'll see you on the inside. to rumble hello and welcome to today's showdown which promises to be a classic in every sense of the word in the red corner the rambunctious royal of real estate all the way from Milady queensland the one and only terry Ryder. <laughs> <laughs> And in the blue corner, the man, the myth, the legend, the prodigy of property <laughs> from Bondi, New South Wales, our very own Goose McGraw. <laughs> Battling it out in a test of wisdom and wonder to reveal the 16 drivers of the property broom for today's prize, eternal glory. <laughs> <laughs> now, I want a good, clean fight between you two, nothing below the belt, and good luck to you both. Cool. Let's get into it, Terry. Okay. That's a very hard act to follow. It is a very hard act. I'm like, what are we talking about? Okay. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to kick this. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to set the scene here, Terry. I'm going to take, take the first jab. So most people would recognize that the property market is currently booming in Australia, and they're all really excited about it. However, there seems to be a continuous undercurrent of doubt, and that doubt is driven by the belief that the property market is booming for one, maybe two reasons, typically interest rates, and we're here to challenge that precept and to either prove or disprove that theory. Should we get into it? We shall. Great. Okay. You've put together- Sorry, Gabby. Gents. 16 points you've got. We've got to keep it tight. So max four minutes each point. I'm going to time you. Fair enough. What's the first point? You know, I think the first point to be made is that media keeps telling us that property prices are rising despite the pandemic. And what that shows the fundamental lack of understanding, what we need to understand to, to fully comprehend what's going on with property markets is to get the simple point, prices are rising because of the pandemic. And as we talk through these 16 points, we'll gain an understanding that many of these points are factors that wouldn't be in play were it not for the pandemic. And in actual fact, we had a, a very good 
in-depth analysis by the very major accountancy firm KPMG, which was published about a month ago, which used its modelling to conclude that level of price growth we've seen in Sydney is double what it would have been were it not for the pandemic. And the level of price growth in Brisbane was about 150% higher than it would have been were it not for the pandemic. So let's sort of have that underlay to the discussion. The first couple Mm. of points I want to make, the first two of the 16 points, very simple ones. We've got a stronger than expected economy and we've got lower than predicted unemployment. I mean, if you go back to, say, April, May last year, when we we hadn't gotten used to the pandemic and what it actually meant, economists were predicting that the economy was going to go into a deep and long recession and that unemployment was probably going to go into double digits. Now, we never went remotely close to that. So that's the very first point, that the economy performed a whole lot better than anybody expected. And I think that gave uh, Australians generally a a lot of confidence. So I think that's... Okay, Okay. so so you've sort of tackled um, points one and two there, right? Stronger than expected economy and lower than predicted unemployment. And I would agree with you because if we go back, you know, 18 months, I believe that you and I were among a very small chorus saying that, you know, that things were going to be good for property on the on the backside or because of the of the pandemic. However, how can you rationalize the the stronger than expected economy on the back of uh, higher than average uh, national debt, which is funding, you know, a sugar high in the economy, the quantitative easing and all of that kind of stuff, and also the lower than predicted unemployment? Well, maybe the prediction interval was wrong because surely given the current lockdowns, that's going to, you know, that's causing peaks in unemployment and all of that kind of stuff. My, my question, my question is, just because it is booming right now, is it sustainable? Because I'm playing the devil's advocate here because I think it's a really interesting point for us to to dig into. Is are we just on a sugar high? Is this all going to come crashing back down to earth? Particularly when you look at markets like Sydney, where ostensibly there are no significant external factors driving the growth. Like there hasn't been a new hospital getting built, or in fact, and in fact, people are leaving places like Sydney. So how do we know that this is going to be sustainable? That that would be my question. Like I think when we get all, all the way through all, all 16 points, you'll see that it is sustainable because there's so many different factors driving it. And one of the factors uh, which speaks directly to your question about, you know, we, we continue to have lockdowns which impact on the economy. But again, I make the point that real estate prices are rising because of the pandemic, not despite it. And one of the factors is that uh, the real estate industry has learned how to adapt to the current situations when it first happened. The real estate industry, um, when we first went into the major lockdowns in the major cities, threw up its hands in horror and, and didn't know how to react. But now we have inspections happening online. We have auctions being conducted online. We have banks conducting the interviews um, with prospective borrowers online. It's all happening through technology. And so we've still managed to maintain through the Sydney and Melbourne lockdowns pretty strong uh, clearance rates for auctions, for example, notwithstanding all the the difficulties that the the lockdown periods uh, present. So I don't think that in itself is a problem. But as we get through uh, more and more of the points, the the 16 dot points, I think we'll have a better understanding of of why this thing is happening and why it has longevity. And one of the points I would make is some of the major forces that are going to give it longevity haven't yet been felt yet or haven't yet been fully felt. Yeah, okay, interesting. I want to tackle just something you've said a couple of times so far since we started this episode, the real estate market is booming because of the pandemic, not in spite of it. Now, 
Would you say, objectively speaking, that the property market would be performing better or worse right now if there was had been no pandemic? Were we just due for a booming cycle? Were there other factors underlying this? And in fact, is it the pandemic or is it actually, in fact, a whole bunch of other things like state and federal stimulus measures which are driving this? Like it's a, yeah, it's a, but- it feels like it feels like it's a bit of a funny thing to say it's because of the pandemic rather than saying it's because of quantitative easing or the infrastructure projects or whatever that are that would be happening in any case. Well, I don't think some of those things would be happening in any case. You know, the stimulus measures you mentioned, they're happening as a direct response to the pandemic in many cases. The, the quantitative easing is, is a direct response to the pandemic. And that's what I mean when I say that, you know, property prices are rising as strongly as they are because of the pandemic, because of the responses and other forces that it's unleashed from government, from regulators, and also from ordinary consumers. Um, some of the responses from everyday uh, Australians is, is also part of this. Okay, got it. Okay, so currently we've got a stronger than expected economy. Why do you think we actually do have a stronger than expected economy? Well, that brings us to the next point. Uh, state and federal stimulus is, is part of that. The response to the um, anticipated or expected uh, economic downturn has been at state and federal level to unleash a series of stimulus measures, willing to go into debt to fund big projects including uh, a big spend on infrastructure, which is one of those factors that will roll out over a number of years and give some longevity to this thing. Um, also, measures that were directly aimed at helping first-home buyers, and we've seen in the last uh, 12 or 18 months, first-home buyers across Australia more active than at any time in my time in real estate, which is almost 40 years. So that's been a very big factor. Okay, so what about the idea that Part of the reason we skated through the pandemic round one so well was because of skyrocketing iron ore prices, which were filling up government coffers and giving us a really strong balance sheet, which made it look really positive for our economy. What about challenging that? Because at the moment, there's a lot of pushback. Like Commodity prices have just fallen off a cliff. I think we've had the single biggest losses in the iron ore sector and the resources sector for like a decade. Um, They dropped about 15%, I think. Um, So there's some pretty significant movements happening there. But then the debt burden, we talked about going into debt to be able to fund all of this uh, economic growth at the moment. Is there not some basis on which we might say this is just a flash in the pan? It feels like for the average punter out there looking at all this kind of stuff, it may feel as though this is going to be a, a peak and then we're going to be forced to kind of crash back to reality at some point. Yeah, um, I really don't think so. I think the responses from government is an ongoing thing. I think the underlying strength of the Australian economy is an underlying thing. I know there's been this hiccup with commodity prices, but you know that's the nature of that particular beast and no doubt they'll bounce back. I mean, there's considerable demand around the world for Australian resources, and I don't think that's going to change anytime soon. I think something to keep in mind in the background is that the extraordinary price growth that Australia is experiencing at the moment is actually a global phenomenon. In fact, Australian growth, strange as it may uh, seem to say it, is actually quite moderate compared to what's happening in, in other Western economies. And I think there's a similar factor going on everywhere. There's there's a huge effort to buy by governments all over the world, particularly in the, you know, the first world economies, to to respond to this with uh, with stimulus in various ways uh, and to to generate economic activity proactively. And I think that's going to be an on- ongoing factor. Demand from China, despite the uh, 
the rancor between the two countries is going to continue because they're, they're just unequivocally on this growth path. And so I think that's going to continue to drive uh, demand for Australian resources. Plus, there's going to be uh, considerable internal demand for Australian resources because one of the big things that we'll get to later down the list is the, the big infrastructure spend. And um, that's going to roll out for a number of years. Some of these are very big projects, multi-year projects, and they in themselves uh, create enormous demand for Australian resources. Well, let me ask you this, Terry. Why aren't we growing faster then? You know, if every if all of the other Western countries are going faster, why are we so slow? What's happening? What's wrong? Well, well we ain't slow. It's just that it's, it's even more extraordinary in uh, some other countries. And I haven't really taken the time to, to study what's happening in any great detail in countries like Canada, for example, New Zealand, mm. I know a little bit about because it's not so far away. You know, I kept fully extended just trying to understand what's going on in Australia. But um, what, what I do know uh, from the, the global research, from the those those companies that operate internationally and the research reports they've provided is that uh, we're part of a global phenomenon and uh, that needs to be kept in mind because there's quite a bit of pushback within Australia from certain forces mm. that this is a crisis, that you know, whenever property prices rise, it's a crisis. Well, I actually think it's not. I think it's the opposite of a crisis. There's so many benefits that we really should celebrate it, and uh, but it needs to be kept in mind that we're, we're not in isolation here. We're actually part of something that's uh, the sweeping the planet at the moment. Okay, cool. So let's talk. We are at time. Okay, cool. Okay, so let's get into point number four then, the build-up of savings during the pandemic period. This is a double-edged sword, right? Because on the one hand, the average household has got a war chest ready to deploy like bazookas to start shooting it out into the economy. There's been floods of hundreds of billions of dollars of quantitative easing, so there's just money sloshing around in the economy, but people aren't spending it. And in fact, that is actually, I think, a big problem because then we get it, then get into the um, the John Maynard Keynes problem of the paradox of thrift. Everyone's saving their money and not spending it enough. So you've put this down as a point as to why it is booming. So I'm wondering how you rationalise the fact that we have record savings rates, which means that people are hanging on to their money, but then also record property prices. How do you rationalise that? Well, I I don't agree that people aren't spending it. They, they are spending it. I mean, we're, we're seeing it in so many so many different statistics. Um, so. I've just uh, I've parried your your right hook and I'm giving you a, a left jab to the jaw there. I think you need to go back and have a look at your figures because what the data shows one one of the manifestations of this is this huge uplift in people spending money on renovations. So that's one of the things mm. they're doing. But um, there's also evidence that they're investing it more widely in uh, in buying real estate or actually selling up and moving house. And that, that's probably one of the big drivers, which we will get to later down the list that people are actually relocating. But it's um, a part of it, maybe a small part of it, that people in lockdown or otherwise restricted, particularly the inability to travel, has meant people has, have had a lot more money to, to put into other things. And uh, we could couple that with the next point on the list, which people in lockdown reviewing their life choices. And I think that's been a big factor, kind of an intangible one and hard to quantify. But you know, people have um, been, been stuck at home particularly in Sydney and Melbourne, and, and thinking about what they're doing with their lives and how they're going to uh, carry their futures forward. And um, that's uh, precipitated some life-changing decisions, I think. Mm. It's an interesting paradigm because people are staying at home more, saving more money, 
deploying that in larger volumes and executing on bigger transactions like real estate. Do you think, not property, it is actually property related, do you think that this period of time is going to result in a higher birth rate or a lower birth rate, as in like population growth from birth rates? Now, I'm not interested in going on an exploratory analysis of people's bedroom habits, but um, I think it's really, because it can either go two ways, because either either right now, people are saying, look, the future's uncertain, we're all boxing now, I don't, let's not have kids, wrong time, don't want to do it, not, nah kids are off the table, that could either be happening or they could be doing the opposite and saying, hey, baby, let's make some babies, right? And now the implication of that, though, is going to result in a transformative future for property because more people are going to need to be seeking out different property types, maybe different locations. So that will cause a socio-demographic shift that will uh, impact real estate as well. So I did bring it back around to real estate. So I'm interested to know your thoughts on that. My thoughts on that? Chris, uh, you've just jumped out of the boxing ring. You're ru- you're running around the perimeter with that one. Um, <laughs> but I had to go and try and find a chair to whack you over the head somehow. Look, I, th- I think we're going to have a, a higher birth rate simply because uh, accidents will happen. Um, I think it's an inevitable consequence of people being stuck in lockdown. Um, what are you going to do to amuse yourself? Um, horizontal refreshment. <laughs> Xbox. Is one, is, is one of the... Um, well, Xbox. Yeah. You, can get, you can get an Xbox, Terry. Yeah. Look... I must admit, I don't have the fact you've just raised on my list, and I haven't given it a great deal of thought, but it did actually put into mind another factor, which is um, roughly related. Uh, it came up in a discussion in a webinar I was doing the other day. A buyer's agent operating in Melbourne is finding that more and more buyers are demanding homes with big backyards, which has been a trend that's been going in the other direction. The, the block sizes have been getting smaller and smaller. But uh, they're finding that more and more people are saying, no, we're not interested. The backyard's too small because um, we're not allowed to take our kids to the park. We want a backyard where the kids can play. And so it's it's changing people's preferences in terms of what they're interested in buying as a new home. It's a kind of a, a side issue, but it's just an interesting one that popped up in relation to families and kids. But Speaking to your question, I really don't know the answer to that. I'll, I'll have to get back to you on that. I'll have to do some Google searching and some basic personal research before I can give you an answer. <laughs> okay, looks like I won that round. I reckon that's I'm putting. I'm talking that one up. You touched on it there, but I th- and this is kind of in in round five here. People in lockdown reviewing their life choices. You kind of did speak to that a little bit, but do you want to expand on that? You've said that there's 16 reasons that the property market is booming. It seems a little tenuous you know people are thinking about stuff it seems like a bit of a stretch to say that that's a reason for the boom don't you think well well, well it is tenuous but and that's often often the case with with real estate and you know you and i have been having other discussions about trying to research the impact different forces have on property prices and it's so hard to separate one force out from another quite often uh, there's a dozen different forces in the mix how, how do you isolate with brisbane having won the uh 2032 Olympics, how are we going to determine how much the Olympic decision is going to impact on the price growth that Brisbane is going to have in the next few years, given that the market was already rising even before the decision was announced? So, And, and some of the factors in real estate are things that you can't put into a formula. That's why I think the economists struggle with real estate so much. They always get it wrong. They always call it incorrectly because they're always trying to stuff things into an economic formula or model. And some of these things just don't fit a mathematical formula. And this is one of them. People are locked down reviewing the life choices. You know, and some of that has been 
a decision to sell up, leave the city and go and move to the country or move to the coast or to a smaller city, which is a, another point that's a little bit further down the list. But I think it's it's all part of the mix. But it's anecdotal. It's, it's not something that you can um, put into um, into data necessarily. I think you can put anything into data if you get a complex enough formula, but that's okay. I do tend to agree with you. I think people are assessing their life choices, but I also counter that and say that a lot of people don't have the ability to exercise those changes. Just because people might say, oh man, I'm sick of living in Melbourne because I'm just in lockdown all the time. They might not actually have the ability to move, the ability to change, either because of lockdowns or because of economic circumstances and all of that kind of stuff. So people's, people's changing mindsets... They might just start watching more vacation TV shows and having escapism oh, that way. We're not suggesting everyone's reacting in that way. We're just suggesting that more people are. Oh, I was yeah. at a, a a kind of a business roundtable luncheon um, as the sort of guest speaker on Friday, and there was a big discussion around this whole thing about you know people moving out of the city and going to other places and what impact that had on the sort of the CBD office market. And some people are reacting like it was suggested that everyone's going to do it. Everyone's going to work remotely. No one's going to go go to work in the office anymore. And that's not being suggested at all. What's being suggested is that there is a shift and significant numbers of people are making that choice. Um, There will still be always, I think, people in the CBD office, but there's going to be fewer of them and that's going to have an impact. I got stuck on the first bit where you said you were at a business luncheon, like in a room with other people. Exactly right, because your listeners should be aware that I'm not in Sydney or Melbourne. I'm in I'm in sunny Queensland, where we in, we are not in lockdown. The only thing we have to do is uh, maybe put on a mask when we go to the supermarket, but otherwise, um, life is free and breezy up here. And let me tell you that um, I've been talking to a, a few agents who operate in the Gold Coast market, which is a market that's going absolutely gangbusters, even though the economists would tell us that that cannot be possible because their whole economy has been devastated by the closure of international borders, and yet their real estate market is pumping like never before. And what the agents there say is every time Sydney and Melbourne go into lockdown, their market goes off. Their, their phones just don't stop ringing because people in those cities utterly fed up with yet another lockdown. So we're getting the hell out of here. We're going to go to somewhere which in their perception is a great place, offering lifestyle and at a more affordable price, i.e. the Gold Coast. Mm. Okay, are, well, that probably... We are at time. Great. So, time that probably, so which one's round six, Gabby? What's, the, what's this one? Ultra-low vacancies. Ultra-low vacancies, putting upward pressures on rents and prices. All right, yeah. I'm going to... I'm going to kick this one off because I uh, look. I see this day in and day out. You know, like we're we're obviously active buyers in in many many markets, and vacancy rates are at historically low levels. And but I would also suggest that that was happening pre-pandemic. So I'd say that you know there was already a lot of uh, rental pressure. I would push this in a slightly different direction now and say that there are a lot of markets that are booming uh, at the moment because of temporary pressure on the market. So for example, if we were to think of like a small coastal town, which doesn't necessarily have any jobs growth or underlying economic fundamentals or whatever, but everyone's just moving there. And right now we can take a snapshot in time and say that there's low vacancy rates and and subsequently rents are going up and prices are going up. But A, do you think that's sustainable or, or what have you got to say about this, this point? Well, that's a little bit off topic, um, but um, look, I think some people are buying in places that don't make a lot of sense. And some people are just 
you know, they're buying sight unseen, making a phone call. It seems cheap because they're sitting in the middle of Sydney and um, compared to their local prices, it seems like a bargain, but it's not necessarily a bargain. And some of the places that people are buying don't have the credentials for long-term sustainable growth. They'll have a, a short, sharp sugar head, I think, whereas the places that have more substance, the real regional centres are going to be you know, good places to own real estate. Um, but the point really is that we've been steadily getting to this point of incredibly low vacancies for a number of years. I think residential vacancies are a factor of investor activity and investors haven't been very active in the market for the last four or five years. There's been a series of decisions made by APRA, by the federal government, by state governments, rhetoric from federal labour at the last two elections, which have been a severe discouragement to property investors and increasingly investors have sat on the sidelines. So quite steadily vacancies have come down and down to the point where it's really hard to find a postcode anywhere in Australia for vacancy rate above 1%. Now that's put a lot of pressure on rents and we've seen some big rental rises to the point where in many locations in Australia now, it's actually cheaper to buy than to rent. And so people are saying, well, and I can save hundreds of dollars a month by buying the place that I'm currently renting or getting out of the rental property and going and buying a home. So that's a motivation for people, particularly younger people, to get out there and buy. And so that's part of the mix that's um, that's in this property boom. Yeah. I actually don't have anything to count. I can't even like be faux antagonistic on that. I think it's a, I think it's a real, you know, it's a massive driver. You know, we're seeing this all over the place. We've seen rents in some areas, rents are rising, have risen by, you know, 10 to 15% in a very short period of time. In most cases throughout the last 12 months, properties that we've been, you know, we'd get a rental appraisal and then get the property under contract. And then by the time it settles, the rents have gone up by maybe, you know, another 5% or 10%, which is not, which is not insignificant. It's a massive jump. But as you say, Vacancy rates are typically below one or even below half a percent in real vacancy rate terms. And so sometimes it's just a case of people not even being able to get. It's not even just necessarily an affordability thing where they go, well, the rents are going up and, you know, maybe I should buy instead of paying the rent. It could actually just be a case of going, I literally have nowhere to live. I need to try and buy something because otherwise, because I can't find anywhere to rent. You know, it's a crisis out there and and it's great for property investors, but it's an interesting point you made as well on the fact that part of the reason vacancy rates are low is because property investors have been out of the market for the last few years. And I think that's a really an interesting, that was an interesting thing that you said, because a lot of people probably don't realize that, that as Mm. more investors get into the market and open up more rental opportunities, that then influences vacancy rates, if that's, if I'm hearing you correctly. Yeah, absolutely. And we're seeing, you know, as we often do, when prices rise, certain sections of the community portray it as a crisis. We've got to take action. And the the scapegoat that everybody uh, likes to point the finger at and want to clamp down on is property investors. And the reality is that the, the price rises that we've seen to date across Australia have actually been driven by owner-occupier buyers, including first-time buyers, and investors haven't really been a major part of it, but they're just a popular scapegoat. Um, but they have been sitting on the side. They're starting to come back in in larger numbers now, but there has been some data recently suggesting that there are actually more investors selling than buying at the moment. They're selling into this rising market to cash in rather than um, out there competing with owner-occupiers to buy into the market. So, there's no end in sight to this, this situation of incredibly low vacancies. And you're right, you call it a crisis. It is the crisis. And it's one that our political leadership seems to be completely oblivious to. They're so obsessed with the, the pandemic. This has completely gone 
under the radar screen. So nothing, no action's been taken to remedy the situation. And um, something needs to be done. And what they need to do is they need to directly encourage property investors because that's the only way ultimately we're going to increase vacancies and get some balance into the market. Yeah, I think, yeah, I think there's probably a little bit more to it as well. And I think this is a really interesting point because a lot of people, you know, their catch cry is like, oh, there's no international migration and therefore the property market's going to go flat. You know, we're still building houses and we're not really adding any more people to the population through migration and therefore, you know, eventually supply is going to catch up with demand and so it's all going to flatten out. And I just say, I just think people just don't have any idea of the scope of the problem that we've got. You know, it's a it's a fundamentally enormous issue. Like, number one, there's not enough building approvals every year in the country to keep up with even – it would take us years to catch up with our current uh, supply-demand deficit nationwide. And secondarily, like the, part of the reason for that is that there's not enough actually land released to be able to build. So I'm not a proponent of like, you know, big estate developments or whatever, but I just think this whole idea, like we are in such a deficit and there is such a housing crisis in Australia that people have this, mis- people that people think it's, oh, it's all going to fall over because, you know, we don't have any international migration. I just think it's, it's madness. So become increasingly hard to create new supplier. It's very hard to get land. Um, if you've got land, it's very hard to find a builder who's not very busy. And the builders, mm-hmm. if you've got one, they can't get the materials they need. We've got you know a multi-pronged problem at the moment. And in areas like, like the Sunshine Coast, one of the, the, the growth markets of Australia, they're expecting an extra more than 200,000 people, extra population in the next 15 years. But the problem is where the hell are we going to put them all? There's not a lot of land available for more greenfield development. They're hoping to do it with infill, but the capacity to do that is is not as extensive as the local council would like. But right now, people who want to buy a block of land on the Sunshine Coast, well, sorry, everything that's available has already been bought. Um, And if you already have bought a block of land, you can't get a builder anyway because there's there's a shortage of everything. um, So the problem is getting worse, not better, which means the pressure on prices is getting even more intense. And that's that's the ultimately the point of that dot point. Got it. Yeah, I would agree with that. Should we move on to the next round? Okay, I'm ready. Um, I'm a little bit battered and bruised, but my trainer in my corner has just <laughs> handed me a glass of water, so I'm okay. Okay, yeah, keep it up, Terry. I've got the stamina. I'm a little younger, so I can you know I can go the yeah, full sixteen. Yeah. But I've got experience, and I'm sneaky. <laughs> <laughs> sneaky rider. Okay, awesome. So. Next point, pent-up demand leading to rising sales activity. What do you mean by that, pent-up demand? Look, I think uh, we had a period where uh, Sydney and Melbourne pretty much exclusively uh, to the rest of the country had a boom from 2013 to 17, roughly. Uh, the rest of the country didn't have that boom. And, uh, and then there was a kind of a what you call a correction period and quite a lot of negativity in the media there had been some actions taken by APRA and other government forces to dampen everything down. And so, yeah, everything was, was forcibly quietened down. And through that period, I think there was a buildup of, of demand uh, across the country. And um, this the last 12 months or so has unleashed that demand. But we'll take it in conjunction with the next dot point, which is low listing levels relative to that rising demand. And that's one of, one of the big issues, for whatever reason, vendors have not come to the party as yet. Mm. Um, there's a school of thought that everyone's waiting for the legendary, mythical spring auction season before they sell. I mean, 
could that possibly be true? It's it's not going to happen because the two biggest cities that participate in that kind of cooked up so-called spring selling season are going to be in lockdown. So their capacity to, to do what they'd normally do is a bit limited. So we've got, you know, incredibly strong demand for all the reasons we're talking about, but but listings are, are still very low. And the figures that come out regularly from sources like ISQ and Research show that um, the listing levels just get lower and lower. And of course, we're not building new dwellings at the rate that we need to. So the equation uh, keeps tilting in the wrong direction. It's uh, very much a seller's market. And uh, so that's all putting even more pressure on prices. So do you think it's actually, which do you think it is more? Do you think it is more influenced by the fact that there are less people selling properties at the moment, or it's actually more influenced by the fact that there are more people trying to buy? Because it's a pretty hard one to, like on the one hand, you could argue that you've probably got the same amount of people trying to buy, you know, because they were probably interested in buying, you know, or, or you know, relatively similar, but maybe there's less less people selling. And you've got to sort of got a question that, and you say a mythical kind of spring auction season, but I, I know that, you know, we don't buy in Sydney and Melbourne anyway, but in pretty much all parts of the country, I would suggest that September, October, November, and up to up to Christmas are peak buying and selling times. So, yeah, but just to counter that with a a right hook or an uppercut, how can it be a peak selling season and a peak buying season at the same time? I mean, you know, this is what well, you can't is, sell if nobody's buying. But this is it has, the to be, it has to. There's two sides to it, Terry. There's two sides. Sorry. The agents sell this thing, though, that this is the best time to sell, but they also tell you that it's the best time to buy, and it really can't be both. It's either in favour of one or the other. But, I mean, there's, there's no actual statistical evidence that selling in, in spring is better than selling any other time. There's no evidence that selling in winter is a bad time, although people still roll out that old cliché. Um, look at the winter we've just had. We've had extraordinary buying activity across the country. You know, winter hasn't been a barrier to anybody. Well, the reason that winter is a barrier and the reason that that myth persists is because that's when most real estate sales agents go on holidays. And so what the real estate industry by and large does is uh, perpetuates a myth that nobody wants to sell around tax time, right? So that typically, historically, they can then take that time to go and go overseas and have a nice sunny holiday and come back fresh. And then when they come back after having a little holiday, they need to stoke the fire of a spring selling season. Look, it's the time to sell. And that helps them to uh, to make up their commission shortfall from the previous, from their little holiday break and to fill up their, uh, yeah. to pay back their holiday credit cards. So it's, which, all, it's, it's all about lifestyle, mate. It's all about lifestyle. Which, well, it confirms my, my previous comment that it's just a, an extraordinary piece of real estate selling agent bullshit they have concocted for their own reasons. It's got no validity at all. But I would say that uh, organisations that are planning to collaborate on research projects, they should add that to the list, actually. Is there any evidence at all that different seasons are better or worse for selling uh, real estate? Because I don't think the evidence really does exist. You would have to define better, right? Because higher volumes is a certain is certainly one aspect of it. And if there's a higher volume of transaction and a higher, if there's a higher levels of buyer activity and a higher levels of seller activity, then that would ostensibly be, you know, driving markets forward and doing all, all, all of that kind of stuff as opposed to buying in a flat market. But you know. I can certainly confirm though that the, the buyer activity is elevated because we do that quarterly analysis of sales activity for every town and suburb in the country. And um, I'm sort of almost finished analysing the June quarter. And the uplift uh, in many parts of the country has been extraordinary. Uh, some markets um, like Ipswich City and the southwestern um, 
periphery of the Brisbane metropolitan area. The uplift over the last six months in sales activity in almost every suburb of Metro City has just been extraordinary, exponential. Mm. And so, you know, throughout winter, um, there's, there's been this huge um, uplift in buying. So does that mean you think you think Ipswich is finally about to have its time in the sun? I think there's absolutely no doubt about that. And um, I'm just um, this week compiling our, our new edition of National Top 10 Best Buys, and Ipswich is definitely in the top 10. It can't be left out because we've observed the uplift in activity. We note the affordability it offers and the infrastructure it has and the employment nodes that it offers. And coupled with anecdotal evidence, I think that market is, is definitely on the rise um, it's been a bit slow to get on board with the Brisbane recovery, but it's definitely on board now. That probably puts us into a nice segue into the, kind of the next round here, because we've got to actually then think about what is actually driving the demand, right? Because if we're saying if we're saying that on the one hand there's pent up demand, that's not going to be it's not going to be all applied in the same area, because as we all are aware, and as you've already illustrated uh, a couple of times. People are leaving places like Sydney and Melbourne in droves. At the same time, property prices in Sydney and Melbourne are going through the roof, right? So it's a bit of a it's a bit of a paradox there for sure. But people are moving, and they're moving for specific reasons. Now, I know you're a big proponent of your uh, big idea of the exodus to affordable lifestyle. I would push this a little further and add another vector to that. And we often talk about the holy trinity being cash flow positive properties in high growth areas with value add potential. But I would say the holy trinity of location selection at the moment would come down to three factors, affordability, lifestyle, and jobs. And so I would suggest that 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 is driving the demand centers at the moment, and that is going to be underpinning the areas that are going to succeed, not just on a sugar high basis, but also uh, to have longevity over the next decade. Well, it's it's a very good point. And I think the point needs to be made again and again and again to people that, yes, that there is this big trend. We call it the exodus to affordable lifestyle. People are moving to the smaller cities. They're moving to the peripheral of the big cities and they're moving to country areas. But it's if particularly if you're an investor, it's really important to choose your locations well, taking a long-term view because I think there's too many people buying willy-nilly thinking we can buy anywhere and get growth and that may be true in the short term, but it won't be true in the long term. There's got to be intrinsic drivers of growth in evidence if you're going to target a particular location, not just because it's maybe a a sexy coastal town and and the prices appear cheap relative to where you're currently sitting. It needs to um, have some substance. It can't be a one-horse economy with just tourism or just agriculture. It needs to have more substance. Well, let me pose a challenge to that, right, because I would – argue that to some degree, even a small coastal town, which purely only has one of the three core elements, maybe it's only got lifestyle, maybe the scale has got two, lifestyle and affordability. It's cheap to live there and it's right near the beach. I can think of plenty plenty of places like that, particularly on Queensland's coasts, you know, maybe places in the around the Whitsundays and stuff like that, where there's smaller regional areas, great places to live. Could you argue that even without specific infrastructure, jobs, things like that, that there could be sustainable market growth there because of the advancements and developments in technology and the shift to uh, remote work and all of that kind of stuff. Do you think that that, or do you think that that's a misplaced understanding? No, I think you could make that argument. And you see, one of the problems we have at the moment is that we are in unprecedented times and some of the forces in play are quite new. There's not, there's never been a situation like this that we can go back to and compare as a precedent. 
And the fact that you've just raised is one of those ones. It it could well be, and only time will tell. What we know to be true up to this point is that locations that are very narrow and fragile economy, just tourism, for example, tend not to have sustainable long-term growth. And it's only when they places like the Sunshine Coast broaden their economy, have a big infrastructure spend, that the, the growth starts to become more substantial and uh, more sustainable. But um, if this trend continues, if people are just moving to places because of lifestyle, because of the ability to work uh, remotely, then um, it may uh, turn the dominant paradigm on its side a little bit and we'll have to start rethinking some of these, these old beliefs. But I can't really answer and I don't think anyone can until we've had a few more years of it. Um, I think the trend's going to continue because it's media has tended to portray it as a response to COVID, but it, you and I know that's not true. It's been going on for longer and COVID has just enhanced and exacerbated it. But um, it, it will continue because it's about technology and lifestyle. And we note that, um, for example, LinkedIn put out some material recently showing that more and more employers who use their platform to advertise jobs are actually proactively offering as part of the package the ability to work remotely because for some employers, and it doesn't work for everybody, but for some, it works at both ends because the employers can potentially save a lot of money on their, their office costs if they have fewer people actually in-house working. So, yeah, places that don't have a lot of substance to the economy may actually have um, just this ongoing demand from people making that shift. Yeah, it's a, it's an it's an interesting one because actually we've seen that even with our, within our team members with the development of better connectivity and Wi-Fi and satellite internet and all of this kind of stuff. Uh, one of our core team leaders within our business, he is actually traveling around the country in his caravan, working from his laptop as he literally travels around Australia. Currently, he's up around Broome and just enjoying it. <laughs> you know, and he's able to do that because of the trans the, because of the uh, transformation of the way that we work. But I'd also say there's another really interesting factor around all of this as well, around this kind of movement of people. Whereas a lot of people once, particularly with fly-in, fly-out jobs, which is probably going to lead into the next point about resources sector, with fly-in, fly-out jobs, often people were able to live where they wanted to live and would just fly to work and do their two weeks on, two weeks off, or whatever the whatever the rolling roster may be. However, with lockdown changes, that's shifted as well. And, and I think that that's an interesting and possibly unexplored paradigm around why some markets might be driving harder than others at the moment, particularly ones that have got at least a portion of their economy, which is related to the to the resources sector. I mean, I'm thinking of places potentially like, you know, the Hunter Valley, potentially places in Queensland and Western Australia, where, you know, it's, it's no longer practical. And in fact, businesses won't even allow employees to live interstate because of the risk of the them getting shut out and losing half their workforce. So it becomes more, more a drive-in, drive-out than fly-in, fly-out. So mm. there's probably still going to be locations in, say, central Queensland that's going to continue to get uplift from the resources sector because you now you can live in Mackay or the Whitsundays or Harvey Bay. And um, when, when you've got your two weeks on, you can drive to central Queensland mines. That's where you're working. Yeah. And I note recently that Broome is booming. Broome in Western Australia is booming. And it's really interesting because like that came up, we were, as you know, we do a lot of data analysis and that's how we do a lot of the suburb selection and stuff like that. Broome hit our radar a little while ago and we did a bit of an exploration into it, but largely I think that that is being driven by the the fact that um, if it's because of its proximity to 
Port Hedland and, and some of the other areas around there and some of the big resources projects in that area. But it also is a lifestyle location. So people can literally drive from Broome to site <laughs> rather than, say, flying from site to Adelaide or Melbourne or whatever. So it seems like that is a perfect example of that in play where people are going, hang on a second, I need to be close to work, but no, I don't really want to live in a donga out in the middle of the desert. Can I actually have somewhere better? And then there was an article recently, the property prices are moving so fast that real estate agents can't even can't even appraise their properties because they don't even know what they're worth anymore. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, I've also noted that the big uplift in sales activity and prices in Broome. So yeah, it's 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 part of the phenomenon. And, um, you know, I just I wish I had more time and resources to analyze some of these individual instances, because I don't think it's all just the same. There's, there's quite often going to be different local factors in play that's driving some of these places. Yeah. Okay. Well, Gabby, what round are we up to? I was just going to butt in and say you actually skipped round 10. We skipped round 10? What did we skip? Well, you can't. It's the most, imp- it's the most <laughs> important one of all. <laughs> so you just gave yourself an up. Just gave yourself an uppercut there. Um, just so while you're on the canvas, I, I could talk about this one. Um, <laughs> I, I think it's incredibly important because this is one of the ones that's going to give longevity to this thing and why I have confidence that, you know, it's not a flash in the pan. It's not going to suddenly stop. Now, it's really clear that state and federal governments intend for us to have an infrastructure-led economic recovery, and so they're, they're fast-tracking everything that's anywhere near to shovel-ready to create jobs and economic activity. And um, in various ways, that impacts very favourably, I believe, on real estate. So that's a big one that's going to roll out for a number of years, and it's just going to keep on going because some of these projects are um, projects that take many years to, to get from start to finish. Yeah. I, I fully wholeheartedly agree and support that. And it's really interesting to see the diversity of projects that's, that are being fast-tracked as well. And one of the, one of the things though that I think people need to be really thinking about in this specific area is what happens after it's built, right? Because it's, well it's all well and good to be like, oh, there's a billion-dollar project here and a billion-dollar project there. And, you know, there's a train line getting built or there's a there's a you know a, a wind farm getting built and all of that kind of stuff and it's going to have I don't know 500 jobs for the next three years, but I really think one of the key things in making sure that you're choosing sustainability alongside the infrastructure projects that are being developed is actually looking at what is going to be the what is going to be the latent impact on the economy and some projects will generate ongoing employment and some projects won't generate ongoing mm. employment, but some projects that don't generate ongoing employment may increase connectivity or ancillary economic benefits. So for an example of that could be, for example, the Inland Rail Project, which in and of itself is quite a large uh, large project. And as the construction phases are moving through parts of the regional economies, there'll be stimulation there because people will be spending money and there's all kinds of stuff going on and local contractors and all of that kind of stuff. After it's built, though, you could argue, well, train lines there, there's not really any additional jobs. However, the additional connectivity is going to open up a lot of these uh, locations, I think, to, to benefit from more of the, um, the exodus to affordable lifestyle. You know, if you think that you have the ability to, to access some beautiful parts of regional New South Wales or Victoria or even Queensland and have a direct line just in the same way, just in the same way that rail connectivity to many satellite locations has, has accelerated um, property price growth because of proximity to jobs when they need to. Because if you imagine as well, like if you're in 
two hours down the train line from Brisbane and you have a job in Brisbane, but you only have to go into the office two days a week, you're going to be able to choose location. You're going to be able to choose to live where you want and then and then travel to the office. So I think there's different types of infrastructure that have different types of benefit, um, both short and long term. Absolutely right. One of the reasons that we like universities and uh, hospitals, which tend to cluster together in our major cities, um, which tends to enhance their impact, is there's lots of jobs in building them, but there's even more jobs in running them. They tend to be uh, institutions that attract um, highly paid professionals, and that can have a big impact on local property markets um, because the, the people actually working in these institutions are earning a lot of money. Um, we're seeing the Sunshine Coast, I think, have enormous uplift in the top end of their market because they they built a $2 billion hospital, then somebody built a private hospital next to it, and then all these specialist medical centres that sprung up around it. And suddenly we've got this whole new industry bringing hundreds and hundreds of new people uh, from other parts of Australia and other parts of the world to live and work on the Sunshine Coast. So that kind of infrastructure can have a big impact on a property market. But again, um, somebody should study this, Goose. They should actually Mm. look at... um, don't you think? Um, I do. I think I, I think I, that's a good idea, Terry. I think I, that sounds like a project. And, and it can be very, very hard again, but the difficulty is separating out the influences. You know, there's a tendency in real estate to have very shallow analysis. This event A can, coincided with event B, therefore event A must have caused event B mm. without considering there's also an event C, D, E, F, and G that might yeah. also be in play. So it's, it's a difficult one, but I think... Um, experience shows that uh, new infrastructure does have an impact both in the construction of it and once it's finished and operating even if it's uh, something that doesn't create a lot of jobs in its operation like uh, like a new motorway it has other impacts so mm-hmm. yeah yep uh, oh, we're at time okay so where are we up to then gabby round 12 the return of expats did we touch on the revival of the resources sector because i really want to challenge terry on that one we, we touched on it earlier, but we haven't really. Um, All right, let's uh, do a quick round. This is going to be a, this is going to be a sh- this is going to be a short one, Terry, because you're talking about the revival of the resources sector, and then at the start we we noted the fact that the resource sector has just has just had its biggest drop in in ages. What happens if China? Stop sucking up all of our iron ore. And what happens if, because of supply and chain disruption, we can no longer to con- con- continue to, you know, accelerate the the resources sector? Don't you think that that's a pretty flimsy basis for for one of your sixteen points? No. <laughs> <laughs> good, you, block. Good, good block. Good block. Good block. Would you like me? To, <laughs> would you like me to expand on the no? I mean. The, the fact that, you know, there's a temporary dip in um, commodity prices, I don't think that that's terribly significant. I mean, that happens. I mean, the resources sector is incredibly up and down as those sorts of upheavals are the norm. The revival in the resources sector, I think, is is a happening thing. There's no doubt that it's underway. And it's not just about China. There's a tendency to attribute everything to China. There's other countries buying our resources. And if China... China can't stop buying them because they need the iron ore for their own expansion and they can't get it anywhere else at the moment. Um, but, the, you know, what about India? What about, you know, the Koreas? What about um, Japan? What about, you know, the rest of the world? And what about Australia? I think one of the reasons why we're going to have an ongoing resources boom is because of our big infrastructure rollout. And, 
you know, you, you can't build roads and rail lines without um, Australian resources. So, you know, it's going to be um, like one's going to feed off the other. Okay, I'll accept that. That was a that was a that was a that was a good block and a solid parry. <laughs> that was well done. <laughs> okay. Well, what about what about the return of expats in large numbers? Let's skip. To, let's skip to the next round. What do you what do you mean about that? All, all I seem to hear about Terry is the fact that people can't, like, there's all these expats overseas who can't get home. It seems to be a big problem. So, what's this? What's this that you're talking about? The the return of expats in large numbers being a driver. Well, whether you can get home or not, you can still buy Australian real estate in in ahead of your return home. But I think that they have returned in large numbers. I don't have the figures in my head, but um, they are substantial numbers. And what I do remember are seeing analysed by people way smarter than me, uh, and I'm not talking about you, is um, that um, the number of expat Australians returning to escape uh, COVID hotspots overseas is actually considerably more than the number of overseas migrants we would normally have coming into Australia in a typical year. Really? So it's, it's more than compensated for that lack and so it's one of the big reasons why markets like like Sydney are still doing as well as they are. Um, that that's part of the demand that's that's coming into that market, but particularly the Gold Coast. Uh, it's the mm. sort of place that's typically targeted by expats and people on the ground. You know, quite often the anecdotal evidence is is a lot more valuable than the, the statistical stuff, which is often lags behind you know real time. And uh, what they'll tell you is that a lot of the demand they're getting coming into the Gold Coast market is expats returning or planning to return and, and buying ahead of um, making the move. Okay, cool. Do you think that that's going to be a, a long-term trend again? Or do you think that that is because, like all of this kind of stuff, there's a potential that it's a knee-jerk reaction, you know, like just in the same way that, you know, people in Sydney and Melbourne are just fed up with lockdown, so they're just going and buying in the Gold Coast. But you know, they've got family, friends, jobs. They've got roots in the places they're in. So expats that might be working in the US or or the UK or Europe or Dubai, things like that, do you think that they're going to return once COVID or if COVID or whatever, once that kind of comes under control, do you think that they're going to then return, maybe sell up, move back to where they were? And do you think that that would then create a dust in the um, property market when that happens? No, I don't because... When we get to that point, then people are no longer concerned about living in those overseas COVID hotspots. It's going to unleash this other force, which is the borders will reopen and there's going to be an absolute stampede of um, overseas migrants wanting to come into Australia. So that's going to be the compensating factor. At the moment, we've got the expats compensating for the lack of migrants. When that sort of turns around, it's going to be the migrants who are going to be compensating for the lack of the expats. But I think it's going to be an absolute stampede. Um, Australia has shown itself to be a safe haven economically and also in terms of COVID, notwithstanding the current very long lockdown in Sydney and uh, in Melbourne. Um, yep. it, has, it has actually, in terms of you know, cases and, and deaths and general handling of it, it has established a reputation as a safe haven. A lot of people are going to want to come and live here. And that's normally the case anyway, but I think it's going to be exacerbated by what's yeah. happened in the last 18 months. And so that's going to be another wave of demand that's going to come into the market. Another reason why I believe this uh, upcycle has longevity. Yeah, I, I actually I actually tend to agree with that because if you think about it in really logical terms, 
let's say Johnny and Mary who are, you know, working in in London or whatever, they want to move back to Australia because it's more stable, it's safer, it's closer to family, they haven't been able to travel. So they buy buy a property back here in Australia, they move back, they establish a nice lifestyle, but then maybe perhaps once everything calms down, they decide that they want to move back. And at the same time, as you say, international borders open, there's a flood of international migrants, which is then pumping up the property market even more. Why would they want to sell, right? Their properties are going to be growing in value rapidly because there's going to be pent up demand. I actually think that there's going to be a, a double impact where you're going to have the supply being soaked up by international demand right now. And then when migration comes back in, I don't think that there's going to be a huge wave of selling as people move back overseas because they'll keep their good investments because the Australian property market is so resilient and so buoyant. I think they'd be mad to sell it. And I think they'll probably see that, which is going to compound the problem of the housing shortage, which is going to then drive up property prices even further. So I think it's a really solid one. I think it's really, I think that the return of expats to the market and not even just expats, but foreign buyers, which I note is one of um what which I note is one of your uh next points, and it's related to related to this as well. I think that that's a really unseen driver that most people aren't noting because everyone's looking at what's right in front of them. They're talking to their friends and family about lockdown or where, you know, all of that kind of stuff. They're talking to people close to home and they're not really noticing the fact that. By and large, as you pointed out earlier, that there are lots of foreign buyers coming into the market, foreign investors coming into the market. Chinese buyers have entered back into the market in a big way, despite the ongoing chagrin between our two political leaders and all of that kind of stuff. I think it's a really interesting driver that probably most people aren't thinking about. Yeah, and it's quite a recent one, just as uh, it's quite uh, recent that Australian investors have started to come back into the market in larger numbers, still not. Um, a huge flood yet, but um, you know, as we commented earlier, the the growth to date has been largely driven by owner occupiers. But now seeing investors driven by FOMO or whatever wanting to get into the market a little bit more than they have, so that's extra competition, extra impetus under prices and foreign investors who, like Australian investors for various reasons, were quite massively discouraged from Australia going back a couple of years. Um, Australia's always looking for scapegoats to blame when when prices rise. And um, there were a couple of federal inquiries into affordability a few years ago. It was a bit like an episode of Yes Minister in that they um, had a couple of inquiries and then at the end of them identified an unpopular minority uh, to scapegoat for the problem. That was foreign investors. So they slugged them with a few extra taxes and charges, which was a great revenue-raising measure without... Uh, any sort of political consequences because foreign investors don't vote in Australia. and um, But affordability, of course, didn't improve because foreign investors were never the problem. But anyway, despite all of that, they're now starting to, the evidence is that they're now starting to, to come back in and, and buy Australian real estate. And again, Australia is seen, as we commented earlier, as, as a bit of a safe haven. And so um, that's another factor in play. Yeah, yeah, I'd agree with that. Okay, so we've touched on that. We just in amongst that salute, that kind of like that dialogue there. We touched on the return of expats, uh, expat Australians in large numbers, the belated entry of investors to compete with owner occupiers. Did we explore that enough? Do you want to get dig into that point a little bit further? I think we've kind of hit on that. Well, um, probably just to say that I think it's you know an absolutely fantastic time to be a landlord in Australia uh, because as we also mentioned earlier, vacancies are so low, rents are so strong. I mean, I know with some of my, my properties, I'm, I'm absolutely gobsmacked at um, some of the rental increases that have been achieved when properties have, have become vacant for whatever reason. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you've got 
because there's such a scarcity, you've got tenants conducting an unofficial auction to, you know, you often end up with more than the asking rent, sometimes mm. considerably more. So it is, for many reasons, a great time to be an investor owner in Australia. And um, I think that's going to be the case for a while because vacancies, as low as they are, can't be turned around that quickly. Totally. I'd also um, go a little bit further on that and say that regional markets, you know, when people think regional, they often mentally think a tiny little country town, but regional pretty much just means not in Sydney and Melbourne and, you know, some of the other capitals, right? So there are a lot of major regional centres, which are actually cities, you know, full of multiple suburbs and tens and hundreds of thousands of people, right? And uh, rental price growth in the combined uh, regions has gone up by 9.9%. Uh, in the in the last few months, it's gone. It's grown tremendously, and so what that is doing is that is actually driving yields. Property prices are growing very very quickly as well, and there is still some yield compression across uh, across most markets. But the rate that rents are rising, if you can get in and buy a property at a static price, then rents are going to be rising uh, rising up rapidly and pushing your yields up in your cash flow. So I agree with you. It's a it's a fantastic time to be buying, particularly particularly in regional markets at the moment. I would suggest. Yeah, yeah, I think so. Okay. What about perceptions about the safety and solidity of bricks and mortar in times of uncertainty? I think this is a really interesting one because I was talking to my mum the other night, gave little mum and, mum and dad a bit of a buzz, saying good day. Oh, aren't you the good son? Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. They, yeah, they, they, you know, they get a they get a call every week. I don't never forget. It's all good. But I was talking, they were asked, they were saying, well, why do you think so many people are buying property right now? You know, because I was talking to them about property. They just couldn't work it out. And I said, I said, I really think that a massive part of it is about certainty. When there's uh, a lot of uncertainty and, you know, things are changing and you could be in lockdown, you may be, oh, it's the, everything's all over the place. No, but, and people want to create certainty in their lives. And I really think that buying something like real estate actually gives them that certainty and control because it's it's a safe asset, it's, it's low risk, but it also gives them certainty that they're taking action towards the future that they desire. It's something that they can control that also has a low risk profile. And so in a time where things can seem a little bit chaotic, it's a really great anchor for people to go, bang, you know, we're here and we're doing, we're doing the right thing. We're taking a step in the right direction. It's we know what's going on and it's very clear and it's a solid, a solid asset. So I'm interested on your take on that and on your point about perceptions about the safety and solidity of bricks and mortar in times of uncertainty. Well, you just articulated it beautifully. I've got nothing to add to that, really. Um, Bam, that was around to I'm, me. <laughs> well, no, it's it's a it's a draw because um I'm just acknowledging that every Everything that you said was absolutely right, and what I was about to say anyway. Um, I think, <laughs> I think this is now. It's one of those ones again that you can't stick it into an economic model or formula, but it's nevertheless hugely influential. I think there's been enormous amount of uncertainty and fear in the community in the last eighteen months. People are, are looking for safety and solidity, and bricks and mortar has that perception in Australia of of um, providing that and um, and I think that's been a, a big factor but very hard to quantify. Mm, totally. Final rounds, access to low-cost finance. Are you talking about interest rates or are you talking about lending policies? Uh, a little bit of both, I suppose, but really about interest rates because th- this is the, the point where um, I take exception to a lot of what's in media and what will you know, pretty much what comes from all the economists across the country, is they talk about record low interest rates as the only driver or the main driver of this property boom. 
And I think that's kind of kindergarten analysis. I think it's plain wrong. I think it's a factor. It certainly doesn't hurt, but um, there's all sorts of reasons why I think it's bunkum. Like? Well, the boom that we're currently having in Australia, we only have this kind of truly national property boom every 15 or 20 years. The previous one was the start of the century. And before that, it was the, the second half of the 1980s, which was an extraordinary property boom. And in both those instances, interest rates were, were high and rising. In the mm-hmm. late 80s, they, they just kept lifting interest rates. They were in double digits. They went as high as 17% for mortgage rates. And they kept raising interest rates. They're incredibly high, but the boom just kept raging on. You know, it was nothing to do with the, the level of interest rates at all being low. They were the opposite. And in the early part of the century, I think people were typically paying 7 or 7.5% on their mortgages, much, much higher than they are now. And they lifted interest rates and they lifted them again and they lifted them again and the boom just raged on. I don't think it's about record low interest rates. The other thing is that nothing significant has changed. When Sydney and Melbourne had their booms that didn't happen in other parts of Australia from 2013 to 17, when asked why, the economist then said record low interest rates. And I then said, well, hang on a minute. How come Perth and Darwin prices are falling? They've also got record low interest rates. Why isn't Brisbane booming? Why isn't Adelaide booming? They've got the same level of interest rates. And then while interest rates were still at those record lows, Sydney and Melbourne actually boom ended and they went into a correction phase. So prices were actually falling during that period of record low interest rates. So now we come into the current upcycle. Nothing significant has happened in that's changed in the level of interest rates. They've been ultra low for a very long time. Um, so the level of interest rates just doesn't explain why we've had this explosion of buying, but the, the points, the previous 15 points do explain it. Yeah, I, I actually so wholeheartedly agree with this point. Low interest rates are great because they help affordability. Low interest rates help to drive homeowners and owner-occupiers into the market because they can afford to pay more for a property because the cost of debt is lower. And I believe that that's underpinning um, some of the growth in places like Sydney and Melbourne, which is largely, uh, particularly in Sydney and places, which are largely driven by you know homeowners wanting to get into the market and their affordability of the debt is actually better. So they're able to afford a higher mortgage. Therefore, they can overbid at an auction and all that kind of stuff driven by emotion and hubris. It fundamentally, aside from that, there's no direct correlation. Uh, sorry, there's correlation, but there's not causation. So you can correlate the fact that interest rates were higher and have progressively gone down. And at the same time, property prices were lower and have progressively gone up. And then you can look at those two lines and go, well, one goes down and one goes up and go, well, therefore, they are intricately linked when it's just actually not true. And as you pointed out, in 1988 and 89, the rates interest rates rose from 14% to 17% over that period. And the median house price rose by more than 35% over the same period. You know, yeah. if, if, if interest rates were a break, then that wouldn't have happened. We did a recent uh, recent study on all of this and just can't see the relationship. The relationship, uh, though, does come from access to credit, which is why which is why when APRA clamped down on access to credit, so clamped down on uh, lending policies and regulations, um, you know, recently in the last decade, that's what stymied a lot of property investors, and that's what actually slowed down the property market. But it was access yeah. to, not cost of credit, because the other thing as well is as interest rates rise, rents rise too. So all of the costs rise together. I just think it's complete. It's a complete farce that people think that uh, interest rates are the driver of all of this. And oh, what if interest rates go back up? Doesn't that mean that 
doesn't that mean that property prices are going to plummet? I just think it's a complete it's complete nonsense. I totally agree. And um, the, the crowd's actually on the sidelines booing because they're expecting a real stoush, and we've actually agreed on almost anything. This this hasn't been a fight at all. I mean, talk about powder puff. <laughs> Terry, but I tried to go easy on you. I was sort of, I was worried. I was worried that I might hurt you. <laughs> well, I am renowned for my glass jaw, but um, I do have a pretty good defence, nevertheless. So um, I, I actually haven't got any cuts or bruises at all. Um, I could go another fifteen rounds or sixteen. Well, I, I think I reckon if we cooked that down to the, I think if we put your sixteen points in a pot and chucked it on the stove a bit, we'd probably be able to simmer that down to about maybe eight or ten. Because a lot of these have been tied together, I think. But look, I think yeah. it's, it's nice. It's nice to break it apart and just say that there's sixteen. Well, I think I think what I've gotten out of this is not necessarily are there sixteen specifically reasons that the property market is booming and will continue to boom, but actually more to illustrate the fact that there's a diverse range of reasons. And in fact, basically none of them are related to interest rates, like pretty much none of them related to interest rates, but it's all of these other factors, whether it be interstate migration, uh, expats returning or driving their money back here, even if they're not returning, you know, foreign investors, infrastructure, change in technology and the change in the future of work and how people are living, plus hundreds of billions of dollars of liquidity sloshing around in the in the economy infrastructure projects being fast tracked and you know all of that kind of stuff i think that these are the real underpinning reasons behind this boom and it's good to uh, thresh this out for the yeah. benefit of the listener yeah i don't think the number of dot points matters what what does matter is that there are multiple multiple drivers of this and um it means that you know a change to one of them isn't isn't going to slow it down so the concerns about if they lift interest rates, um, which they've said they're not going to do repeatedly, will it slow it down? Well, no, because there's all these other factors and interest rates isn't that big a driver anyway. But you could you could isolate any one of those points and say, what if this changes? Well, the answer is, well, there's all these other things that still are still in play. So um, it's the, the sum total of all those influences and factors that gives me confidence that this thing is going to roll on. I don't think the rate of price growth can continue to be as high as it is, but certainly growth in prices will continue, I think, for well into next year and maybe beyond. Yeah, well, that was going to be my next question. How long, given these variety of factors and that most of a lot of these are long-tail impacts, not short-tail impacts, how long do you think that we're going to be in a, in a national property boom for? I think that from start to finish, maybe three years. And, it, and the question is, okay, when do you identify the starting point? Because there are some markets that were already on up cycles long before the nation got on board with this thing. So I think it will continue into 2022, that would be my expectation, as a, as a national phenomenon. Interesting. Interesting. Nice. Well, we'll see. I'm, we've, got, we've recorded that now, Terry, so I'm going to wheel that out. I'm going to wheel that out at the end of 2022, and we'll see see if you are see if you are right. How's that sound? Okay, yeah. Um, <laughs> um, something I think the media should do more often. I think one of the reasons that you know, the the chattering economists get away with being so bad at what they do and being so abysmally poor at forecasting stuff is media never goes back and checks what they forecasted. <laughs> Some of them would would never have any credibility at all if anybody did a simple check like we do. So. Uh, have a have a look at what this this guy predicted in two thousand and five and how it 
spectacularly wrong they were. Yeah, totally. All right, all right, ref, Gabby, who won? Who won this? Who won this battle? Well, guys, we are we did pretty average on time, to be honest. <laughs> and uh, you seem to you seem to have more handshakes than uh, knockouts through the whole through the whole match. But um, the winner has to be Terry Ryder. I mean, so Terry, you are. I'm giving you eternal glory. So there, there you go. Congratulations. I've, thank you, Gabby. I've always wanted that my whole life. I've been trying to attain it. And and I'd just like to thank my mum and my dad for having me and um, and for everyone who supported me and made this possible. Um, I'll, I'll just hold up my trophy. Uh, <laughs> awesome. Terry, it's been a good match as ever. It's been a scintillating discussion uh, and I've – Always enjoy having you on the show and always enjoy the opportunity to to parry back and forth around these kind of points because it's um it's a great range of topics and a and a great range of things that we can explore and look at from different angles. Yeah. So thanks for being a good competitor and we'll see you for the next show. Yeah, and thank God people like you and me have these discussions and put it out and about because you're never gonna get this in-depth, informed research base and analysis of what's really going on in mainstream media and it really needs to be but it's not well we just need to start promoting this show a little bit more and get this into the mainstream media and maybe put together a couple of research projects and start pumping that out too we'll see what happens what a great idea okay terry thanks for your time good to see you again okay okay